Before we begin, I want to thank our sponsor, Next Estate, specialists for English speaking investors for buying, selling and managing property in the Berlin market in Germany. You can find Next Estate at next-estate.com and next-estate.de. Allow me to introduce today's guest the way Clayton Christensen does so in the book, The Innovator Solution. I have spent much of the past decade puzzling over two questions. The first, it is easy to explain why poorly run companies fail. But many of history's most successful and best run firms have lost their positions of leadership too. Why is it so hard to sustain success? The Innovator's Dilemma summarized what I learned about this puzzle. It's not just management mistakes that cause failure. Certain practices that are essential to company success, like catering to the needs of your best customers and focusing investments where profitability is most attractive, can cause failure too. The second centered on the opportunity in the dilemma. If I wanted to start a company that could become significant and successful and ultimately topple the firms that now lead an industry, how could I do it? If indeed there are predictable reasons why businesses stumble, we might then help managers avoid those causes of failures and help them make decisions that predictably lead to successful growth. This is the innovator solution. The challenge of this research quickly outstripped my abilities and I have relied upon some extraordinary people to help me to complete it. Michael Rayner has tutored me from the day he arrived as a doctoral student at Harvard and he has been an exceptional colleague. To describe Michael's integrated grasp of arts, letters, philosophical discourse and history as incisive would understate his intellect. Michael has balanced his work, his duties as a husband, father and director of research at Deloitte Consulting, all while shuttling between Toronto and Boston. I deeply appreciate his selfless, humble and persistent hammering to get these ideas shaped right. He has become a great friend. Our guest on this very special tribute to the work of Clayton Christensen, he is the author and co-author of four books, including The Three Rules, The Innovator's Manifesto and The Strategy Paradox, all of which sit eagerly on the shelf behind me to cover in the future. It is a pleasure to welcome the co-author of The Innovator Solution, Michael Rayner. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Aidan. It's uh, gracious of you to uh, to read back Clay's words. It's been a long time since I've gone and looked at them, and it's uh, it's touching and uh, appropriately humbling uh, to hear them. So thank you for reminding me of that. Absolute pleasure, and thank you for joining us and dedicating some time to this, Michael. I know you're busy, as Clayton pointed out there in that introduction. I thought we'd start with that relationship because writing a book at that early stage, just after the innovator's dilemma obviously brought you together closer. And it probably changed the course of your life in many ways, and some that you won't even know, perhaps we'll start with that relationship. Yeah, I, uh, I met Clay as a he was um, recent faculty at I'm trying to remember the precise dates, I think his doctoral work finished in 92. He joined uh, HBS faculty uh, upon graduation. Um, Dilemma came out in 97. Uh, was not an instant hit. Um, and then took off like a rocket ship in kind of, I'm going to say early 99, something like that. 
and uh, he was on the cover of, I can't remember if it was Forbes or Fortune, I'm going to say Forbes, uh, with Andy Grove, and, uh, and then that really put him into the stratosphere. And uh, while that was all happening, he was still fulfilling a full slate of teaching uh, responsibilities at, at HBS, where, as you mentioned, I was a doctoral student, and I took a doctoral seminar with him. And uh, so that's when we had a chance to work together. And I graduated in 2000 and joined um, Deloitte in Toronto and uh, um, collaborated with him on my first publication, uh, my first Deloitte publication. So he was gracious enough to co-author something that, that we did together. And I think as a consequence of the uh, seminar work and then collaborating on that paper in 2000, came out in 2001, was as a consequence of that, that uh, he invited me to work with him on solution, which was something that he had been working on for some time. Uh, it's not as though we were kind of staring at blank sheets of paper wondering what Innovative Solution was going to say. Clay had a, a whole body of work and uh, indeed a, a chapter outline already in place. You know, it's, it's, uh, I've had more than a few people come up to me over the years and say, oh, so you're, you're second author, he's the famous guy, so you did all the work, right? And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm, I'd like to think I earned my spot as second author, but second author is the right place for me to be. I'm not, not concerned, not confused about that at all. A lot of that work was already done. A lot of the thinking was already in place. And uh, to the extent that I contributed, it was in uh, helping to craft it into, a, into what I hope is a, a coherent and uh, an accessible narrative. So it was, uh, and you're absolutely right, to the second half of your observation, to say it changed my life is... Uh, uh, entirely accurate. I'm hoping we're going to cover those articles because to cover this book, it's so robust. The questions asked are timely. They have not gone away. In fact, they're probably more relevant than ever before. But I'd love to cover the article, the 2001 article today in this sitting. But also then, like you said there, like, so he was working on the solution to the dilemma. And what often happens in this field is that you get accused of scaremongering. And that did not escape the innovators dilemma or solution later on when some proponents went ahead and actually criticized the disruptive innovation theory. And, and I was hoping we'd cover that today. Because in looking at that, like you did in an article that you wrote, you are actually educate very, very well on the theories. So I thought we'd do that because it was a really interesting read for me. I really enjoyed it. And it's available on Deloitte's website. I'm going to put it in the show notes where people can download it. It's your response to a critical article in the New Yorker by Jill Lepore. And it was really, really helpful. And I'd, I'd love to cover those two things today. But let's start with the 2001 article skate to where the money will be. <laughs> and it's still so timely, that article. So maybe we'll, we'll set it up with your context for the article and how that happened. And then we'll get into the actual content. I, I gotta say the, the title of that article was Clay's idea, which it which is will be forever an embarrassment because of course, skate to where the puck is going to be is something Wayne Gretzky said. So for Clay to beat me to the punch on a hockey metaphor is um, something I'm, I will never let myself live down, especially since Gretzky and I were born in the same town, Brantford in Ontario. So I, I really, I, uh, uh, I, I, missed, I missed my chance on that one, I'll tell you. Um, and that was a, uh, an attempt to, that, was a, a, that article focuses on one particular dimension of the um, suite of frameworks that are discussed in Innovator's Solution. And it 
speaks to something that has informed my thinking ever since I, you know, came came to grips with that particular approach, and that's the the oscillation in any value chain between integration and interdependence and modularity. So any value chain, as the metaphor would imply, has any number of links or components to it. And the degree to which you need managerial tools to integrate those links so that they connect well and work well together, and the degree to which you are better off relying on market mechanisms to integrate them is a strategic choice. Um, it's not something that it uh, that that is uh, dictated to us, right? So, as managers of organizations, leaders of organizations, you get to decide um, what mechanisms you're going to use to coordinate activity. And so, what Clay's work there revealed uh, for me is both this is something that changes over time, and the forces that cause it to change over time. And uh, so, skate to where the money uh, will be was. Uh, an elaboration on that one particular set of tools. You talk about in that article something that we've seen unfold since then, which is unbundling and disintegration of large firms to try and look for value or maybe sell off parts of the company. But you also then talk about overshoot. And those two theories or those two concepts are really important to understand when you look at the innovator solution. Maybe you'll unpack those for us as well. Yeah, I think it's useful to differentiate right at the outset the difference between a diversified conglomerate and an integrated firm, right? So we're not talking about GE in 1967, right, with uh, uh, nuclear power plants and broadcast assets. So that that's that's a whole other that's a whole other quandary. Uh, instead, we're talking about organizations that. Uh, that, that have under their roof the various components required to create a, uh, a, a, um, a solution for customers. So the, the classic example, and I'm really dating myself here, but the classic example that we used was the evolution of the personal computer industry. And back in the day, in the, God help me, in the 1980s, 1990s, there was a, uh, an arm wrestle um, between Apple and Microsoft about whether you should be integrated across hardware and software or whether this is something that would be entirely modular. And so you had the, the, the Wintel architecture with the, uh, the Intel microprocessor, the Microsoft operating system, applications provided by third parties and other companies still manufacturing the computers. And then you had Apple, which was by comparison, kind of soup to nuts, everything under one roof, right? Their own OS, their own hardware, their own applications, and so on, right? There are all kinds of nuances there, um, but at a, uh, um, I'll submit that the characterization I've given it is, is close enough for current purposes. And then people observed that given Microsoft's dominance during that era, um, they said, wow, so clearly the right thing to be is uh, is highly modular, right? You focus on the on the valuable parts of the value chain, not the less valuable parts of the value chain. And Clay's observation was, well, hey, wait a minute, um, it, it it's a little more complicated than that because Apple was, of course, very successful in its early days and then less successful after the fact. And why might that be? And so what Clay observed is that. When you're building a, when you're, when you're trying to master a suite of technologies and integrate them in order to create a solution that's good enough for very demanding consumers, you can't really rely on market forces because it's very difficult to nail down precisely what it is you want from your suppliers. So when you can't specify what you want, when you can't determine what good performance is actually worth, 
you're better off having all of that under one roof and using organizational mechanisms to coordinate activity, to allocate value, and so on. And that will allow you to deal with the ambiguities and the rapidly changing nature of the technology more effectively than companies that are forced to deal with long-term contracts with arm-length suppliers. But once things settle down, right, once you know where the, uh, what those interfaces look like, once you can specify the engineering parameters, once you can specify the financial parameters of transacting, et cetera, and so on, then, then, in fact, it does make sense to use uh, market-based mechanisms. And then, as an organization, you should disintegrate. Uh, and then you get to choose. So what are you going to keep? Well, now you want to think carefully about what dimension, what element, what link in that value chain is, in fact, going to be in a position to hoover up most of the profits. And at the risk of making it sound easy, because it's not, um, you want to uh, hold on to that module, right? that link in the value chain, that is driving the performance of most value to customers. And so when you think about a personal computer, again, I'll stick to the 90s just to avoid picking fights with anybody today. Um, you, the thing that was driving the value was the operating system and the applications, not the box. And so Microsoft kept all the money. And when it came to the hardware, the piece that was driving the value was the microprocessor, not the disk drive, right? And so as a result, it was Microsoft that kept all the money and Intel that kept on the, on the software side and Intel that kept all the money on the hardware side and everybody else was living off the crumbs. Um, but then things change, right? So you look at the evolution of the mobile phone industry and you think about how Nokia was dominant for, for such a long period of time. It was just they could do no wrong. And Apple came along and people like Rim and Nokia looked at them and said, mobile phone, that, that, that's ridiculous. But guess what? It's now not, it may not be the largest by volume, but it certainly keeps most of the money. And it is one of the most tightly integrated platforms uh, in the business. And it has been for a long time. In many ways, it's been quite surprising to see how dominant it has been for so long. Um, so it, uh, that goes to show right? How, how industries oscillate. Uh, last example, um, if you look, because it's, it's very useful to look at fast moving industries in order to see these phenomena play out uh, on a human time scale. If you look at the auto industry and go back to 1920 and look at how that has oscillated, it has gone through a similar series of, you know, the waxing and waning of modularity versus interdependence over time, you start out with Ford, where it's completely integrated soup to nuts. You end up with uh, General Motors becoming dominant with a much more modular approach. And now, as you've seen the world shift finally from internal combustion engines after a century of internal combustion engines moving now to electric vehicles, it's been Tesla that has completely reinvented that space with, wait for it, a completely integrated front to back value chain. Um, and uh, so it's been. Uh, an incredibly powerful framework in my mind. Um, nothing's a theory of everything, make no mistake. Uh, and again, lots of nuances, lots of difficulties, but as a starting point, as a way to begin framing uh, a more detailed investigation into the evolution of an industry and where organizations might want to play within that space, uh, I found it indispensable. I was saying to Michael, I can go so many places with the amount of research that he's done 
I'm going to link, as I said, to an article that he co-authored with Clayton called Integrate to Innovate. And it's all about the kind of communications industry through the lenses of disruptive innovation, partnering, unbundling, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to leave that for another day because we have so much to get through. I wanted to jump to, as I mentioned earlier on, the Waves and Ripples article from 2014. And this was the article that was in response to the common criticisms that come because oftentimes people proclaim that people who work in innovation have a vested interest in becoming fear mongers and actually talking about the, the the threat to the industry and everything's coming down chicken little the sky's falling down and this was an attack directly on the theories that Clayton and you worked on together as well so again I'd, I'd love you to give context and then I thought we'd go through as you do in the article really really well you take a theory and then you talk about how it was criticized and actually what it is really about. And that was where I said my learning became consolidated as, as well. Yeah, um, so feel free to cross-examine the witness a little if you wish, because uh, it, it's, it's been a while there too. But my, um, how would I put it? There, there, were, there were two dimensions to the Lepore article that I thought kind of missed the mark. Um, and the first was, and I think the, the line I used was she, she, she kind of, she tries to slap clay with a paternity suit for everything that's ever been said in the name of disruption. And, you know, not everything that gets tagged disruption is clay's fault. Uh, in fact, we had a piece in the HBR, I don't know, I want to say 2014, 2015, what is disruptive innovation? Because, um, you know, once that word, I mean, that's a well-formed English word. But Clay didn't make up that word, right? It's not flibberty gibbet or, you know, jabberwocky. I mean, it's, it's a well-formed English word. You can look it up in the dictionary. And, and curiously, it actually means to throw into disarray, right? Um, and in, in scare quotes, right, disruptive innovation is a particular type of innovation that follows very, so he's given it a technical term. And so within the context of Clay's theory, disruptive innovation means, does not mean what it means in the dictionary. It means a whole different thing. And what ended up happening, I think, as a consequence of the success of the ideas is that understandably, lots of people grabbed onto them and in good faith, right, uh, looked to expand the scope of the application of the word and, and use it in ways that made sense to them. That's all fair game. But in, I'm going to say most, hard to read everything, but in most instances, these good faith efforts to expand the scope of the theory were done largely on the base of anecdotal evidence, not the kind of careful research that Clay conducted to create the theory in the first place. And in most instances, those attempts um, were not consistent with disruption theory. They did not extend or elaborate on the theory in particularly useful ways. They, for the most part, they just confused the, the issue. And so Lepore comes along and scoops up pretty much everything that's got the word disruption in it and says, that's Clay's fault. Well, I don't think that, no, I'm, I'm going to disagree with that. And, and, and in the article that I wrote in response, I tried to make the, make that case and people can decide for themselves whether I made a compelling case or not. But so that's one dimension of it. And then the other piece of it is that I think as is not uncommon, um, she under, misunderstood, I think, some important nuances for how, how these, these dynamics of competition play out over time. 
um, perhaps no, most notably, um, Clay's foundational research, going all the way back to his doctoral dissertation, focused on the disk drive industry. And so in Lepore's criticism, she says, well, look at the disk drive industry today. It doesn't look anything like that. Well, okay, you know, that's like saying Carl Lewis was never a championship sprinter because Carl Lewis is no longer a championship sprinter. Well, that's foolish, right? Um, so it, those two dimensions of the criticism, I think, uh, went a long way to, to undermining really, and this, this sounds uncharitable because Jill Lepore is a respected academic and longtime staff writer at The New Yorker. This is not, you know, it's not like she hasn't earned the right to have an opinion on these things. Um, but it seems to me that uh, there's very little of merit um, in, in her criticisms of disruption theory. There was a link to the 2009 financial meltdown because of disruptive theory. And, you know, people went way overboard and trying to find new ways of making money, etc. So it does go a bit far. But also, and this is said with respect for Jill Lepore as well, it's very difficult to understand this, even when you work in the in the field. Because I pulled a quote, and this is from the footnotes from chapter two of the Innovator Solution. And, and this is really, really helpful. I'd love you to unpack this. You and Clay wrote, after watching students and managers read, interpret, and talk about this distinction between sustaining and disruptive technologies, we have observed a stunningly common human tendency to take a new concept, new data, or new way of thinking and morph it so it fits one's existing mental models. Hence, many people have equated our use of the term sustaining innovation with their pre-existing frame of incremental innovation, and they have equated the term disruptive innovation with the words radical, breakthrough, out of the box, or different. They then conclude that disruptive ideas, as they define the term, are good and merit investment. We regret that this happens because our findings relate to a very specific definition of disruptiveness, as stated in our text here. I thought that was a key piece of information and is often a folly that happens to so many people. Yeah, I think that, I think that's true. I mean, for me, the way I keep it clear or try to keep it clear in my head is to remember that disruption theory is a theory of customer dependence, right? It's a demand side theory, not a supply side theory. So the incremental versus breakthrough innovation, that's a supply side thing, right? That's about comparing different solutions with each other and saying, you know, this change is this big and this change is this big. So this is incremental and this is breakthrough. And so this is sustaining and this is disruptive. No, because you're talking about supply side, right? Disruption theory is about which customers are you serving, right? You, you tell me which customer segment you're serving and we're 98% of the way home to whether or not you are going to pursue a sustaining or a disruptive path to whatever, you know, in, in pursuit of whatever financial success, whatever commercial competitive success you hope to achieve, right? So it's, it's all about the customers, right? Disruptive innovations start out serving unattractive niches with inferior, so it does have a supply side element, make no mistake, but it is fundamentally about serving different customers that are of no interest to incumbents. Right. And into the bargain, you very often do it using technologies that are of no relevance to the incumbents. And then when you put those two things together, you've got an opportunity to knock them off. Why? Because you're perfecting a fundamentally different set of uh, solutions 
targeting a completely different set of customers. And so not, it's not that they don't see you, it's they, they do see you and they don't care. That you're hidden in plain sight, that's perfect, right? And, that, and so all the way back to where you started, Clay's question was if I wanted to build a company that was gonna knock off the incumbents, you know, powerful, well-run incumbents in an attractive industry, how would I do it? Well, you probably wouldn't want to mount a frontal assault on their 50 foot high, three foot thick castle walls, right? You're probably gonna lose. You know, you'll be Monty Python galloping up to the French, galloping up to the French castle, clapping your coconuts together. I realize I'm mixing scenes from that movie, but but you know what I mean. Um, and that won't go well. Um, disruption is a very different way of, uh, of 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 attacking those fortified positions. I'd love to build on that, and I I knew because <laughs> I was thinking of the you know the Black Knight when he hacks off yeah, his yeah. leg <laughs> and he keeps fighting. That's a more famous line. You're right. That that's when uh, the company keeps fighting, and it's like the, it's game over here. It's game over. So um, I I'm going to jump to actually innovators solution because there's some terms there that you articulate really well, and I actually found this the solution does a great job of simplifying the dilemma in many ways and there's some key terms again that are so important to understand and i'd love you to talk about them the the first is value network and i'm going to a little quote to tee you up here our original dimensions time and performance define a particular market application in which customers purchase and use a product or, or service in geometric terms, this application and set of customers reside in a plane of competition and consumption, which the innovators dilemma called a value network. And this term is so important to understand because of that area of non-consumption and is the product worthy for my best customers, etc. Yeah, it, it really what I think Clay was getting at in, in characteristically precise terms was identifying that... Um, it's not like you're just opening a lemonade stand in a different part of town, right? So if you're going, in many instances, we're looking at fairly, you know, almost any product today is technologically sophisticated. There's no such thing as a simple product. I don't care what you're making anymore. And if you're going to create something that is, um, that is drawing on different technologies, has a completely different performance profile in order to appeal to different customer segments, then chances are the entire, what we referred to 15 minutes ago is kind of the value chain, right? The value network is a better metaphor, right? Because the, the notion of a value chain connotes this notion of linear links and it goes one to the other to the other. And that's a somewhat limiting image, right? So value network captured, uh, today we'd say ecosystem, right? So we're, we're, as we grope our way towards images and metaphors and language that captures the true complexity uh, and interdependence of the various elements of what it takes to create a modern product. Um, so value network was the term that Clay used at the time to capture um, th this more nuanced concept. Thanks for tempering me with this, because I, I think it's really useful to say, well, that's kind of the same thing that we talked about or we talk about now, because this is where this work is so valuable, but sometimes the language gets overlapped or confused, etc. Th there's another couple of terms that I'd love you to share. And again, modernizing them, if you will. The other one that you mentioned in that chapter two is new market disruptions. And you say here, 
that new market disruptions compete with non-consumption because new market disruptive products are so much more affordable to own and simpler to use that they enable a whole new population of people to begin owning and using the product and to do so in a more convenient setting. Again, a very important term to understand the whole theories. The distinction in solution between low end and new market, I think was quite, I think it was, it was an advance in the thinking. Um, uh, and that wasn't, that wasn't a contribution that I made. That was something that Clay developed independently of actually beginning work on the book. And the idea was that um, the uh, the distinction is between, and, and the labels I hope are reasonably self-explanatory, segments of the market that are simply much more price sensitive for, an, for a specific solution, right? So you, you, you come in and you make something that's cheap and cheerful and you pick off that low end of the market and you use a different technology to do it. And then that technology allows you to move up market over time, right? So the example from Dilemma, that illustrates that is um, uh, the mini mill example, right? The steel industry. So um, electric arc furnaces at first, you know, are melting down scrap steel. They have low quality inputs. They have fairly limited production processes. The only thing they can make is rebar. Rebar is a very small um, fraction of the total volume and it has very low margins. So if Nucor, the, the mini mill, is picking off the 5% of the market that constitutes 2% of your profit and your U.S. steel, I mean, when I used to, when I was on the book talk circuit, you know, there were kind of the, the, the stock lines that you, that, that you would use. You know, I mean, you, you, you'd send Nucor a dozen roses for taking those customers off your hands. Like the only reason you made rebar was so that they'd buy your sheet steel and you didn't want to leave them hanging. And if they're like, you know what, I can get cheaper rebar. They're like, that's awesome. Buy all the rebar you want from Nucor, right? But then Nucor keeps churning its way up market because they're smart, right? They figure out how to make ever better steel using the same production technologies. That's the key, right? Is that you don't move into the high end of the market by adopting the production technologies and financial constraints of the incumbents, because now you're just now you're now you're in a war of attrition. You're fighting the same battles with the same weapons. That's not going to work. Um, even if you don't fail, the odds of breakthrough success are much lower. Right. Um, and uh, so that's a low end example. The, the new market example is when you start out, as you mentioned, competing with non-consumption. And you, you saw that a lot with, um, uh, you see that a lot in, in personal electronics and computers, you know, so people have, um, uh, you, you look at the wave of mainframe computers to mini computers to personal computers to mobile phones, every one of those things started out doing a completely different job, sometimes for the same consumers, right, but doing a completely different thing for them. Right. So people started out having a computer and a phone because phones and computers did different things. But then the phones got better and better and better and keep eating away at the jobs that computers do for people. And there's lots of folks in the world who have a phone and that's their computer. Um, so that's an example of, of new market disruption. Another important term that you talk about is and some people will have this will have dawned on them, or else they have read it is the concept of a hybrid disruptor. So this is where they're attacking two parts of the opportunity at the same time. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, so low end and new market are not intended to be mutually exclusive, right? They're intended to be collectively exhaustive. 
So those are, those are your two options when it comes to finding a foothold for a disruptive trajectory. Um, but uh, there are any number of examples of companies that have created a particular sort of solution that does both of those things, right? So you can imagine, for example, and it's not hard to see why, right? Imagine somebody comes along with something that is sufficiently low cost and low price that it appeals not only to the low end of the existing market, but it's so cheap and cheerful that entirely new segments of the market, you know, people who were previously priced out of that market entirely now enter it. So is that new market or low end? Well, you know, this isn't medieval philosophy where we're trying to figure out how many angels fit on the head of a pin, right? I mean, it, 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 we, we introduce these frameworks and these distinctions in order to come up with something useful that helps us answer difficult problems. And if it allows us to identify um, promising opportunities, that's great. And if we look at it and at the margin, we find ourselves arguing over whether this is eggshell white or, um, you know, some kind of uh, uh, cumulus cloud, you know, uh, ivory. I, who cares, right? I mean, that, we don't need, that's, answer it either way. And the reason you know it doesn't matter is because you don't change your choice based on the result. So just carry on. And some of the questions that you ask to identify, is it a disruptive opportunity are important as well. And, and again, this goes to the solution. I, we won't do them all because there's an exhaustive list and a lens through which to ask those questions. But there's some key questions that perhaps you might share with us that, that to ask to go, is it just a good idea? Or is it disruptive? Yeah, I mean, that's always a tricky one, right? Again, back from the from the book talk days, the, the line was, um, um, disruptive ideas often look like bad ideas. But the conundrum, of course, is that bad ideas often look like bad ideas. Um, and so the, the trick is to tell the difference. And the, um, uh, the checklist, some of the elements of that checklist that I have found helpful, right, is so in the first instance, we talked, we've talked about the demand side a fair bit already, right? So understanding what customers are you serving. You want to know what kind of financials, what kind of financials you need to hit in order for this to be attracted to you versus your putative competition, right? Something where um, uh, smaller volumes and thinner margins are nevertheless an attractive uh, result for you versus them. That's great, right? You want them motivated to go somewhere else instead of to chase you. Um, uh, and and then critically, you want to ask yourself. Uh, does your solution build upon or have at its core what I've referred to as an enabling technology? Something that allows you to basically ride the progression of core technologies to ever higher performance and ever better financial results without you having to invest a lot to make that happen, right? So when you think about the progression of a lot of technologies, it has been driven by improvements in core technologies that the, the providers themselves didn't have to invest in, right? Microprocessors, a key enabling technology, um, broadband and internet. If you think about somebody like Netflix, right? So Netflix builds its, its initial solution, uh, a perfect example of a, of a low-end, uh, as you mentioned a moment ago, hybrid, so low-end new market solution, appealing to customers who were still going to Blockbuster on Friday night, by the way, right? So the same customers, but a very different job that those customers were trying to get done. And it did so with a completely different set of performance criteria. 
and then Netflix was able to get better over time. Why? Well, because the phone companies were busy and the cable companies were busy building out ubiquitous broadband solutions and the consumer electronics companies were busy building ever better phones and computers so that you could consume their product whenever and wherever you wanted. That's, that's brilliant. Um, so that's a great example of somebody that, that got all of those things right. Um, now, to point out the fact that trees don't grow to the sky, what kind of battle is Netflix embroiled in today? Well, now it's a slugfest. You know, you may have heard of the streaming wars. I don't know if you, you know, unless you've been living in a cave, right? That it's, it's a different game today than it was in 2015, right? So where disruption theory was a very powerful lens through which to view Netflix's prospects for a long time, it gets to the point where, well, circumstances have changed. You know, you get to the point where the enabling technology is kind of plateaued. You get to the point where other incumbents are like, wow, this is actually, this matters to me. I need to throw some resources at it. And that's great. You know, that, that's the evolution of competition in the marketplace. It's not that all of a sudden I say, oh, I guess disruption is no good because it doesn't explain what's going on now in this particular industry. No, it's just no longer appropriate, right? It's, uh, and that I suppose is something that I've, um, to the extent that I've uh, got a, um, a potentially slightly different perspective on disruption theory, it's that I think the power of the theory lies in understanding when and where it's applicable, not looking for ways to expand its remit so that it explains everything all the time. Because uh, I think that's, uh, I mean, I'm overstating the case to make a point, but, uh, but I think there's, there's real danger um, that, you know, the sort of the community of, of, uh, folks that has grown enormously over the years that has found real value in disruption theory, it can be incredibly tempting to see, uh, to see its application in places where it may actually not be either the best solution. In fact, it may not even be an appropriate, um, an appropriate toolkit to use. You make that very clear in, in the innovative solution. And that's one of the things I noticed from reading the the Lepore New Yorker article is that uh, you are very humble about it, you and Clay, and you go, this is just a lens through which to see things, but it doesn't mean that you're going to guarantee success. And it doesn't mean it's the right lens. Like you, you consistently say that. So I wanted to emphasize that as well, that you do make that very, very clear. And that's never, it's never like, here's my here's my man with the hammer tool <laughs> that works for everything and not at all. But I wanted to jump to another couple of things that you rightly identify. So one of the one of the questions you ask, and this goes both to your article integrate to innovate with uh, the communications industry, but also anywhere is like, what, what do I do myself within the organization? And when do I partner? That's another core question that is important to the solution. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, we, we mentioned that earlier around the whole kind of modularity interdependence thing. So where where is having control over particular dimensions of your value network um, close to essential to success? And and where can you rely on um, an arm's length partnership? Now, in some instances, you actually won't have a choice, right? I mean, if you just don't have the financial resources or you don't have the technical expertise, it, it may be better for you to be integrated, but circumstances may just conspire against you and you simply can't do what you should. Well, that happens. Um, but where you've got a choice and where you can 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 um, slant an approach in one way versus another, that's where this theory, I hope, is helpful. You know, where there are 
high degrees of ambiguity, where there's a need for constant uh, and iterative communication and refinement, you know, all of those things that rely on what I'll call organizational mechanisms in order uh, to, to, to figure out how to uh, uh, coordinate different dimensions of an organization, even just different individuals, right? Because you're, you're, you're trying to create and allocate value very often simultaneously. And if you have to do that with the lawyers in the room, that gets kind of tricky. Um, so when you can do it in a more organizational form where there's clear kind of risk sharing as opposed to, you know, very clear cut and dried allocations of, uh, of who gets what, then it's, uh, then it's easier to cope with those uncertainties and with that ambiguity. And as a result, you're better able to, um, to push the limits uh, of what's possible. I'd love to come to in a, in a moment, the whole idea of, of, do you do it in house? Do you have an autonomous or organization because they'll start to compete and the corporate immune system will reject the new entity, etc. But before we do, I think it's important to mention the growth imperative, imperative, which is the first chapter of the solution. And it's close to the work that you're doing today. Because there's such a drive for growth that organizations do entail massive, massive risk. They they go after huge risk because the, oftentimes the the meme is oh they're risk averse. But actually, because of the growth growth imperative and trying to satisfy the growth desires from Wall Street or shareholders, people take massive, massive risks. And you give many examples, like AT and T in the book. Yeah, it's my change, my thing has kind of evolved on that, right? I mean, it's uh, and largely as a result of the climate crisis. So the the notion that sort of um, every organization has to grow, it's uh, I don't have a well worked out answer, frankly. So I don't I don't have a pat view on what that looks like. I just I'm increasingly of a view, you know, folks like Backlash Smell, for example, that that talk about, hey, look, it's just again, trees don't grow to the sky. The the desire to grow, all organizations trying to grow is really kind of painted us into a corner when it comes to resource consumption and, and where we've landed. I mean, if we figure out how to decarbonize everything, maybe we can get back on that particular treadmill. Um, but as of right now, we really have done ourselves an enormous disservice as a, as a global civilization. The, the obsession with growth is concerning. Um, you know, the view is that we need an economy that's more like a helicopter than an airplane, right? Our, our current economy is an airplane. If it's not moving, it's falling. You know, well, helicopters don't have that problem, but that's because they're designed completely differently. Um, and I don't know if and how it's possible to build an economy that doesn't need to grow. Um, I just, I, like I said, that's a real conundrum for me. I, you know, I, I, wish I, I wish I had everything figured out, but I don't. In part, that's the dilemma. Like you're a leader of an organization. I often, I often compare it like, you, you know, hockey, say let's, you compare it to a hockey team and a new coach comes in, there's pressure on that coach to deliver a cup this year. Oftentimes it's not like this is a project we're going to go for three years. Unless you're the Maple Leafs, in which case you never have to win the cup ever again, apparently. <laughs> okay. So unless you're the Maple Leafs, if you're another coach coming into another team, and that the coach very rarely goes, okay, I'm going to invest in the academy and build a team for three years time from now. They have to both exploit and explore at the same time. And very few leaders are given that leeway. Well, but that's, I think that's separate from growth. Um, because working to 
sustain an organization, right? To allow an organization, to enable an organization to survive and indeed thrive. You can do that without growing, seems to me, right? So um, I, I say this with, with um, appropriate circumspection because I'm not sure it's true, but it feels like it should be, right? That the desire to create a, a thriving organization that um, survives over time, we should separate that from the growth imperative. It seems to me that's different. And um, given that competitive markets change and evolve and so forth, then the organization itself will have to change and evolve and it may need to change technologies and its capabilities and it's that all of the things that make it what it is today may well have to change over time and fair enough. I didn't say anything about growth in any of that, right? So that, that sort of continual, continuous renewal I think can be enabled through the judici judicious application of, of disruptive innovation theory um, and can be done in a way that once again is separate from the notion that it's all about more. It, it, may, it may be all about different rather than being all about more. I don't know. But, and one of the things that you talk about then is in the growth imperative is so, so you have this Oh well, you, you Wall Street. You've grown so much. Wall Street's seeing the growth. You you predict X amount of growth, and your stock market price is based on the prediction of growth, and therefore you become slave to that potential. So so that that's where I'm kind of going. Like you're a leader of an organization. How do you manage that? You have to you have to almost kind of as you say, you can grow by in a holding pattern, almost like winter for a plant. I'm still riotous. On, the roots are riotous. But I'm in this holding pattern as I'm powering up new growth. Yeah, but you, I guess what I'm saying is you can grow to a certain state and then stay there, right? So, you know, 500-year-old redwoods are not, you know, they're not 10,000 feet high, right? They reach a certain state and then they're, they're in a state of equilibrium within a larger ecosystem. Uh, nothing lives forever. So, you know, that'll be true of organizations as well. But the, but the idea that it's constant growth, that, you know, you're a bicycle or an airplane, and if you're not moving, you're falling over, that's, you know, not getting bigger, you're, you're dying. That's, that's the assumption I'm questioning. You know, and, and you, you adduced um, financial markets and equity markets in particular. You know, I, I've written about this in other places. I have a somewhat, I haven't seen this written other places. I'm sure it's out there. It's a big world. Um, so I doubt I'm the first, but the, um, you know, I look at equity markets not as the primary beneficiary of organizations, but simply just another supplier of what companies have, might happen to need at a point in time. You know, company need, companies need lots of resources in order to survive. They need labor inputs, they need customers, they need governmental inputs and support, and they need equity financing from time to time. But that doesn't mean you exist to maximize the benefit to any one of those constituencies. You just pay them what you need to pay them in order to get what you need to get from them in order to do what you're trying to do. And so if equity investors require a certain level of return, well, then that's what you aspire to give them and no more. Why would you maximize their value? Why would you maximize the value you give to any of your constituencies? The thing you care about as a company is your own survival and your own thriving. Again, not necessarily growth. Um, but that's what I think an organization should worry about.
a great point on, on, on a personal level as well. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? It's like on when's enough enough and you can value the things that are truly valuable that you don't realize till later on until perhaps you've, you've gone too far. Yeah, maybe it's uh, you only know where the line is when you cross it. Right. But, um, um, but that's to the extent that I'm trying to grope my way toward a, a coherent view of, um, uh, a growth, uh, an economic system that is indifferent to growth is, is something that I think. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. That's okay. Because obviously you, you will need new organizations to just like you need new trees in the forest. Right. So there will have to be new organizations. They will grow over time, but they don't have to grow. They don't have to keep trying to grow forever like that. Uh, that's cancer. That's not healthy. Right. Amen. Amen, brother. And speaking of, of uh, you know, new growth, it raises a question then is where to plant those new saplings so do you plant them under the protection of the existing oak do you plant the sapling or do you put it somewhere totally separate you know, like yeah it's a really good question it, it's really tempting to pick up the 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 metaphors of the mother tree i don't know if you've read that book um i recommend no. it i recommend it highly um but it's uh what appears to be true about forests also would appear to be true about um commercial ecosystems as well. And then very often we, we, we make the same mistakes when it comes to trying to understand them. Um, so I may get some of this wrong. If there are uh, professional foresters uh, in your audience, I'll, I'll apologize in advance, um, either for getting the, the, the science wrong or for insulting them. I'm about, I'm about to do both, I fear, um, which is that standard forestry practice when it comes to um, replanting uh, uh, clear-cut areas. And they clear-cut, by the way, because the thought is that that is what mimics fire, right? So fires don't go through and simply burn down the big trees and leave the little ones, right? If anything, fires do exactly the opposite. They burn the little ones and leave the big ones, or they just burn everything to the ground, right? So so clear-cutting is not um, the the insult to the environment that, that some might think it is. Well, when it comes to replanting, what they tend to do is get rid of all the brush. They bring in herbicides to suppress competing plants. They plant the seedlings and then they go back and they actually tend to those areas to, to make sure the trees are growing, as they say, free from competition. But what, um, um, what the mother tree, I can't remember the woman's name who wrote it, unfortunately, um, but it's called the mother tree. And what her research shows, um, in my view, dispositively using very rigorous scientific methods is that the diversity in the competition is absolutely essential to the health of the trees and the forests over time. So I'll give you an example. Um, when small trees grow in open areas with lots of sunshine, they grow very fast. And if you're trying to grow trees to cut them down and turn them into paper, then I suppose that's a good thing. But if you're trying to grow trees that are actually healthy trees, it's a terrible idea. Because what tends to happen is they grow so fast that the heartwood um, has very wide growth rings. And so when the tree is big, its core is actually very weak. And so those trees tend to fall over in storms that would be nothing to trees that had grown in a more natural environment. So instead, what seems to be the case is that when trees grow and they grow slowly in shade, you know, advancing millimeters a year for decades. And then what happens is either they finally outstrip the scrub around them 
or the large trees around them are struck by lightning or die from senescence or whatever, then they can grow. But now all of a sudden they're growing very rapidly on, at the risk of mixing my metaphors, a solid foundation. And so the rapid growth takes place on top of a very tightly packed, very dense heartwood. And that's a solid tree. That's a tree that's going to survive all manner of insults. And so curiously, the very thing that we feel compelled to do in order to get the tree to grow is the very thing that will end up compromising the longevity of that tree and its ability to withstand the inevitable insults of, uh, of a long life in a, in, a, in a dynamic forest. I don't know. Sounds to me like there's, a, there's something to be learned there about the life of, of organizations, that organizations that grow too quickly, too rapidly, um, in full sunshine with no meaningful competition, no meaningful constraints, they won't be able to withstand uh, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Uh, thank you, Hamlet. Um, but organizations that are forced to earn their way uh, into those, in, in, into that subsequent growth period, those are organizations that have got the dense heartwood required um, to uh, to survive in the long run and, and to realize their full potential as a result. Um, that may be nothing more than a metaphor. It may actually capture a deeper truth. I'm not sure. It feels like the latter to me, but everybody gets to make their own choice. I love it, man. Th that that alone was worth it. And I can see what Clay meant now when he said your your arts and your words and stuff. So uh, all coming together. And I just Google it there. It's it's Suzanne Seymard is the name of the lady. Yeah, Suzanne Seymard. Yeah, Suzanne Seymard. I think she's um, Franco-Ontarian and she works out of uh, University of British Columbia these days. Um, brilliant, brilliant piece of work. So on that, right, because... I love the metaphor and there's a there's a term called rank growth which is really really fast growth and I, I know it because my my dad worked in forestry and if he, he told me don't feed the plants overfeed them so you know you're kind of go, oh I got this lush growth if you overfeed them they have rank growth and to your point they don't have that that stress wood with inside the tree and when they get when the, when they're not exposed to harsh conditions they they die yeah, Nassim Taleb makes the same point, right? He talks about anti-fragility. Um, so Taleb is sort of, he, he's, you want to inflict these stresses on yourself, right? Because those stresses make you stronger. Um, and uh, I don't sign up for the Nietzschean dictum that whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I think that's not true. There's lots of things that don't kill you that just hurt like hell and are for no, <laughs> for no good reason. Um, but there are certain types of stresses that, that any biological system, right? It's stresses that make it stronger, the right kinds of stresses. And so it, um, for the most part, we tend not to seek these things out for reasons we understand. Um, but when, but we shouldn't engineer the environment, uh, to avoid these things because we pay a price. And I think that's one of the things we're seeing at the moment with some of these unicorns that were, buying customers etc that they're a little bit like the the rank growth i think you got something there you know, sort of the, the avalanches of cash um and uh it's uh i don't know <coughs> we work um <laughs> <laughs> there's a great documentary on we work as well so uh it's not we're not saying anything out, out of uh out of school here <laughs> there's a i'm gonna i'm i was i was tempted to keep the metaphor going and gonna go what about the forester so the forester as the ceo because th this is an important question you ask is okay 
you, you've decided to move the new entity. And you mentioned loads of case studies in the book, like IBM. They survived because they actually created a new unit away from the mothership, away from the 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 sucking sound of the core that didn't bring them back in. And that that's an important consideration. But then also you ask a really important question. And many of our audience are CEOs is when do they get involved? Because when they get involved can kill the new entity, they can kill the sapling. They're like, when's this going to be profitable? They start kicking the tires of it. And it's a really important question. And I don't know if there is an answer to that. Yeah. Well, it occurs to me that the bumper sticker that Clay used um, that I found very helpful is that you want to be impatient for profit, but patient for growth. So that's our version of kind of the opportunities to grow the dense heartwood, right? You actually want to build a business model that generates real value for actual customers. And the way you know that is whether or not you're profitable. You don't know that simply because you're growing. Because to your point, you can buy growth. You can't, by definition, you can't buy profits, right? So the ability to be profitable, you can't really fake that. Um, and so our view um, in, in solution is that you want to insist on that profitability first. Now, when it comes to the role of senior leadership, um, and this is, I think, why we took the conversation in this direction, there's a chapter on that in Solution. And the um, the uh, the suggestion we make there is to say that the role of senior leadership is to, um, is to allow the new business to operate under the uh, under very very different financial constraints and, and to have the ability to create entirely new approaches to the marketplace. So it's not necessarily that as senior leadership, you get involved to create the new thing. I mean, CEOs are allowed to have good ideas too, by the way. So if you've got a good, it, it's tricky though, because if the CEO says, you know, I think this might be a good idea, guess what? Magically, it turns into a thing that everybody works on. So it's, it's very tricky, right? You have to be careful on, you know, not having ever been a CEO. I, you know, I've never experienced that, but I'm told that's what happens. Um, so that's tricky, but what you can do, what, what, what senior leadership can do is ensure that new businesses that are exploring and trying to create a disruptive trajectory, um, are not encumbered by the, uh, the, the kinds of targets and financial constraints that define the core business. It doesn't mean that they don't have targets or financial constraints, our whole conversation about trees, right? You need targets and constraints. Those are absolutely essential to just kind of throw open the barn doors and take off the halter and say, well, let her rip. That's a good way to lose a horse. Um, but, uh, but they do, will have to be very different. And the art, to some extent, lies in choosing what those are. Um, and it's, it's very circumstance specific. And much of what I've spent a lot of my career thinking and writing about is, um, uh, deciding specifically what those should look like under what kinds of circumstances. We're going to cover and pointing behind me to the shelf here nicely. They're not superimposed, by the way. They're on the shelf. Oh, the real books? Wow. Okay. Oh, absolutely. All hard covers, man. All hard covers. Three <laughs> rules up there. Look, there it is up the top. So <laughs> I, I am, I'm dying to get to, to rip into those and uh, rip off the barn doors and get stuck into those uh, later on in the year. But I, I really wanted to ask them. The capabilities question. So, the this and this probably goes to culture is 
you're going to try things and a lot of them aren't going to work. And I don't mean, for example, where you go that growth imperative where it's like kind of going buying up lots of stuff. And actually, you probably would have been better off not buying anything and just focusing on, on the, the business and building inner capabilities, maybe. But the the whole concept of trying something and it not working, but actually looking for assets in the ashes of what was left over mm-hmm. is, is a really important part of the culture. And th- I think this is where we go culture back to hockey the culture of the team is also part of why the team's winning it's not just about technical prowess yeah and and here we're really getting beyond the the remit of of disruption theory proper right and that's 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 understandable um because all of these things are connected uh inextricably uh and the uh so i i alert uh, kind of send up a flare there only because I, uh, I, I say different things with different degrees of ferocity, right? Based on what I, what I think I understand and what my evidence might be. So, uh, I'll talk about the mechanics of disruption and innovation with a fair degree of confidence. There are other things that I'll have an opinion on, but, um, I'll say that with less vigor. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, uh, the culture of an organization, the values of an organization, the way in which people interact with each other. I mean, of course, that's absolutely essential. I mean, organizations fundamentally are groups of human beings trying to get along and coordinate their activities. So guess what? The way in which we deal with each other is essential. You know, as I, the way I've come to think about it is that we're, um, um, we're, we're primates with brains, not computers with bodies. Uh, and, um, you know, we're dealing with two million years of uh, of of all manner of evolution that makes it actually, in many instances, really, it both makes it possible for us to do what we do, and in many ways makes it very difficult to do a lot of the things that we're trying to do. Um, and uh, you know, we've all lived through that, and I don't have particularly well worked out or a privileged perspective on on how to do that more effectively. I'm afraid. Well, I had a, a vested interest in asking that because I, I thought it was a nice way to bring it right back to Clay again, because one of the consistent things I heard about the man, and I didn't know him, was that when you did, and he, he would make you feel like you were the expert and you were the most important person in the room. And that also created a bond that got the best out of you. Yeah, I mean, the way I think about it is what I, if I've, I've learned a great many things from Clay, but one of the, the, the meta learning almost is that, um, uh, you, you, you should be able to learn from anyone. I mean, everyone you meet will know things you don't know and should. And, uh, and that's what you want to be on the lookout for. Uh, and so that, that's, that's one form I think that humility can take is to, is to understand that whomever you meet, they will have life experiences that you can't relate to and that you would be better off if you could. And so, uh, you know, one version of that that uh, my wife shared with me from one of her friends was, uh, uh, you know, be kind for we all carry a great weight. And that's kind of the other side of that coin, right? So be curious because we all carry great knowledge. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful way to conclude today's episode. Michael, for people who want to find out more about you and your work and the books behind me here on the shelf, I'm going to be hunting you down to get you back on the show, man. For And you'll have to think of some more metaphors for the future for next yeah, time. Yeah. As the saying goes, I got a billion of them. I don't know if they're any good, but I got a billion of them. Yeah. I, I like them. I, I'm a metaphorical learner, so I'm I'm totally up for it. Where, where can people find you if they want to reach out and find out more about your work, etc.? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, feel free to contact me. I'm mrainer at deloitte.com. 
and uh, um, I did it back in the day I had a website, but I really don't anymore. So uh, um, any of the um, the books are available from you know from wherever wherever fine books are sold. Uh, you you can find them online and less so in the shops because they've uh, they've come out a few years ago now. But uh, still, all available online, of course. They're all all available online. I can testify to that, and, and I hunted down the hard copies as well. They're out there as well. Author of the Innovator Solution, Michael Rayner. Thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Take care. I want to thank our sponsor, Next Estate, specialists for English-speaking investors for buying, selling, and managing property in the Berlin market in Germany. You can find Next Estate at next-estate.com and next-estate.de.